Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and this is the last week that I'm standing in for Pam Vardy, who's uh, probably still swanning around Europe, I think. Um, I'd like to observe that last Friday was Endangered Species Day, and uh, with an increase in habitat destruction and environmental change every year, unfortunately, the list of endangered species grows. And according to the International Union of conservation for nature, at least 40% of animal, plant and insect species around the world are at risk of extinction. And it makes us pause for thought about the things that we can do to um, sort of play our part in helping them. And and all the little critters, not just rhinos, tigers and polar bears, all Mm. insects and things like that. But luckily for us, there are two mammals who aren't heading down Extinction Road and coincidentally, they're in the studio here today. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, we've got our resident herb, garlic and now tomato expert, Penny Woodward. And a man who knows so much about roses, I think he might have even invented them, Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Morning, A.B. Lovely to be here. Yes, uh, and you were saying it was a challenge even arriving here, is I'd that right? Just been a, just been a bit busy recently. Yes. <laughs> a little bit busy? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. Thank you That's for coming right. in. No, it's terrific. How is everybody? Yes, good, thank you. Yes, mm. yes. Haven't uh, seen you for a while, Graham. No, looking forward to all. We're starting to get our bare-rooted roses in now. Yes. Which is really good. Yes. And, um, yeah, it's been, been a challenging season. It's been very dry yes. for lots and lots yes. of people, and I don't. For some of us, it's changed a bit. We've had mm. a we had a um, about thirty mil last mm-hmm. uh, over the last sort of two weeks, mm. but before that, we'd had nothing for mm-hmm. three or four months. Mm. So, um, and I'm, I know that there are inland areas who mm. got ten mil um, mm. out of the, you know. So there are lots of people who are still really struggling for mm. water. Yeah, especially in inland areas. I've just come back from a an, a place of paradise up in the Tambourine Mountains in Queensland. And uh, that's not reality for what was happening to a lot of Australia, yeah. they tell us, and um, especially in, in the outer areas. Outer yeah, and, areas. And, and it also seems to be quite specific to quite small areas. My mm-hmm. sister and her husband actually live on Magnetic Island, mm. and they've had huge downpours this mm. summer, so mm. you know, two and three hundred millimetres. But mm. they had that was the end of a seven-year drought. Mm. Mm. Just in that sort of tiny area, Magnetic mm. Island, Townsville, yeah. um, you know, mm. so... And you don't hear about that, about those very specific mm. areas sometimes. Mm. No, that, that's yeah. right. And what does it mean for you? Like, what does the um, dry autumn meant for you for the rose farm, Graham? Uh, well, it, it, it brings immediately to a challenge because I've been working on breeding, mm-hmm. and um, I actually believe in the in the plant world, breeders have a tremendous challenge, especially in Australia, because we've got to really work on plants that are really drought tolerant. Mm. And um, I really believe that's important. And one of the challenges I think we've we've got in, especially in the farming world, because we have contact with a lot of farmers. A lot of our market is now with people in outer areas, um, where irrigation, for instance, is 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 um, has played such a big part in the last what hun- over a hundred years. Mm. And for instance, f- breeding fruit trees that are really trout drought tolerant mm. um, and breeding um, uh, vegetable plants that are really drought tough 
Mm. Um, and grape vines that are that way as well. Mm. I think also on a smaller scale, working out in your own garden the um, varieties that suit your climate and mm-hmm. soil and that sort of thing really mm. play a big part. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And look, I think I've neglected my garden so atrociously this summer that I've, mm-hmm. it's been a really good lesson in what survives, what mm-hmm. survived and what hasn't. Yep. So um, I have a lot of indigenous plants planted around the outside and they've been absolutely fine. Um, mm-hmm. I've, been, I've had a, a, a sort of an indigenous area where I've been growing kangaroo grass and various other edible and useful plants and yep. most of those have done really well as well. Mm. Uh, camellias just survive anything. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I, there were camellias in my garden when I came to it, and and they're still there, still there despite my yeah, neglect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, there's a lot of herbs that will do really well, and and so maybe you also need to, you know, think carefully about what you're putting into your garden. And I'll be thinking carefully about what I put back into my garden now that I've lost a few things mm. as the result of of neglecting it. Um, uh, but uh, you can also create your own microclimate. Mm. So I have a um, a banana that usually needs buckets of water, but it's actually done really well because it's growing right next to a pond. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so it gets the, the moisture in the air yeah. from this large large pond that's yeah. full of other sort of water-loving plants. And so I concentrate my, my water-hungry plants around this pond, not necessarily because they get watered more, but because they have a moisture environment mm. to be in. So mm. there's all sorts of decisions like that that you can make in mm. your garden as well. And is your banana, is it protected at all? No. So just near the pond? It's near the pond and, it, well, it's protected by the house. The house, okay. it's between the pond and the house. You're right. So it, and it's facing north. So it gets the warmth it mm-hmm. needs in winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the water ameliorate, ameliorates the temperature so it doesn't get quite as cold in that part of the garden. Yeah. Um, I've only had one big bunch of bananas yep. on Still, it. Still, yes, yeah, it hasn't. Mm. But the plant is surviving really well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it, you know, grew two two new sort of further apart shoots after the fruiting part of it died. Um, and I've let those two grow yep. this time. Yeah. But they've done really well despite the lack of water and despite the fact that I haven't been watering and caring for it. Mm. So. And is it a um, cold tolerant? It's a dwarf variety? Cavendish. Dwarf Cavendish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which yeah. is not especially cold tolerant, yeah. but it's a bit more cold tolerant than some of the other cultivars. Yeah. And do we have to have a um, certificate no. or anything for growing bananas? No, yeah, because there's no commercial there's production. No. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's only in areas where you've got commercial production that you need a certificate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, talking about water, I, I think it's um, important that um, we look at the need for proper fertilisation and using more organics where we've relied so much on water-soluble fertilisers and water-soluble fertilisers, as we've um, discovered with um, growing roses, that uh, it tends to give you a lot of soft growth. Um, But getting back to um, plants that uh, don't need so much water, then in turn you can find that often the taste is more more pleasurable and more intense because they haven't been forced. Mm. And, of course, nitrogen is, is one of our biggest challenges. And I've always said nitrogen is, is born around the fact that we use it in fertilisers. And the mental thinking of that is get it in, get out, and get your money back. Um, so um, and we work with uh, um, a gentleman, a Chinese-Malayan gentleman, in the beginning of our horticultural career about 40 years ago, and he used to say, you have to create for people 
a memorable experience with every mouthful. <laughs> and, and, and we tried to apply that with our cafe that we had in mm. Kilmore that we ran for, um, you know, for 15 years. And, um, and, and it applies to all of us. We love to have a good experience. And mm. food is, food, of course, in, is now uh, really at the forefront because of our challenges with obesity. Mm, mm. And mm. do either of you think that we use fertiliser too much? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, every mm. talk I give, I get up and say, you know, before we had the drought of seven years ago, we watered too much. We discovered that things survived that didn't need as much water as we thought they did. Um, and, you know, this doesn't necessarily apply to um, veggies and fruit trees, but all the rest of the garden, mm-hmm. they didn't need as much water as we'd been giving them, and it's exactly the same with fertilisers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different ways you can provide fertilisers now. And for me, it's a lot more about the organic matter that you need to get into the soil that creates the um, microbiome, which then breaks down the organic matter, which provides the um, nutrients that the plant needs. Mm, so mm, um, mm. it's setting up the right conditions for that microbiome to thrive mm. will actually provide the nutrients to your plants. Mm. Yeah, and also that, um, as you're saying, with the bacteria and, and fungi, I mean, that's mm. pretty much where it all starts yep. in the ground, and then your protozoa and your nematodes. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting how... It's the a lot of the nutrients are locked up in the bacteria and fungi that feed on things in the soil, and mm. the nutrients aren't available to the plants. And when the nematodes and protozoa feed on the bacteria and mm. fungi, which they do, um, their poo basically makes the nutrients available to plants. So mm. these are critters that we mm. really need in the soil. So if, and that old adage, you know, you feed your soil, not your plants. Mm. If we really nurture our soil and and try to encourage heaven for bit nematodes and protozoa mm. um, in the long run that's going to be beneficial for the plants. Yeah. Well things like um, lucerne hay are really good for protozoa mm-hmm. so you know mm. if, you, if you're going to mulch um, you know particularly in your, in your veggie garden areas I, I use lucerne hay all the time even though it's a bit more expensive but I'm mm. not then buying fertilisers or mm. you know other things that other people might spend money on. Yeah mm. so um, you're helping critters that are helping the plants. Indeed. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, look, the other thing I'm really careful about these days are fungicides. Mm-hmm. So I don't use Me fungicides yep. in the garden, mm-hmm. anything, organic ones even. Um, I will use um, the potassium-based sprays, but they don't actually make it to the soil and they don't actually kill the fungicide, fungi. They stop the fungi from spreading, so they create a leaf surface situation that is not conducive to fungi. But mm. um, I, don't, I don't use copper. Very occasionally, I, I I use sulfur, and that's it. Yep. Um, yep. So and and nothing else. I because know because it's, it's so crucial. Yeah, and it, it's um, sort of hard sometimes to remember that when we're spraying on the plants, it's dripping on the ground, mm. and that is if you're spraying a fungicide, of course it's going to affect the fungi in the ground, mm. and these fungi, these are the communication networks for mm. plants that we're mm. finding, aren't they? So yeah. um, you're basically destroying plants' communication networks. Yep. Mm. So yeah, yeah I, I just. So yeah. um, Penny is, is is copper. You believe a challenge to earthworms? Indeed, mm. it, it accumulates in the soil um, and, and it kills not only the fungi in the soil, but mm-hmm. once it accum- starts accumulating, it will also kill the earthworms. Mm. Mm. So yeah. Mm. Well, we, we've uh, always encouraged our customers to, with roses, to use um, liquid seaweed. Yeah. And I, I've got some liquid seaweed in here this morning, um, and it's. It's eco seaweed, yeah, but any of the good garden. It's gardens. not liquid, and it's one of the things I love yeah. about it is that mm-hmm. you make your own liquid seaweed mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. it's not really heavy, 
to buy or to carry or mm. all that sort of stuff mm. it comes in a form that dissolves mm. easily in water and then you mm. can use it on the garden so I'd, well, I'd love that to paint a picture for, for uh, mm. people who are listening the, this eco seaweed is, is actually a powder and it, it actually does come from China yes and the Chinese as I understand it have been um, to the forefront with research with liquid seaweed and, and they do have millions and millions of acres uh, of, of cultivated seaweed um, off their coasts mm. and of course Tim Flannery now is um, in his latest book he's talking about seaweed and its impact on the environment yep. and they're looking at, at, at rafts in the ocean and they've, they've been doing a lot of work mm. with that and um, they tell me that it's, it's considered to be the fastest growing plant in the world mm. and um, can be really a really great benefit to everybody mm. in terms of what comes through plants that we eat because it's got over 70 minerals in it and minerals are really, really important. And I know that from, from what I've been doing with fowls and um, with poultry. And, um, you know, I've had a background of poultry ever since I was a kid. My dad was a poultry farmer. And um, you'll see the results in the egg that mm. once you crack it open. Mm. And, and you'll see the, you know, the real colour. And, and Penny's talking about lucerne. Well, lucerne is always in front of my fowls every day. And um, that's a thing that'll give you the beautiful colour in the egg, mm-hmm. and of course um, you'll get that the, the nutrition in in the actual egg itself. So, in what form is the lucerne in front of your fowls every day? Oh, I just put it on a tray. Yep. Um, and it comes from a bale of lucerne. Okay. And put it on a tray, and they'll go through it. They'll yep. pick out what they want and what yep. they need. They're very discerning. Um, fowls, they'll pick up things yeah. in the garden, and they'll they'll go around and pick up even. Herbage from different yep. things, mm, yeah. and um, um, and often, you know, the the kids say, "But Poppy, they they're over there eating that weed, which is chickweed, and now they're coming back here to the lucerne, and they're over there somewhere else." And I say mm. to them, "Mate, they don't like their wheat fix and corn fix um, uh, twenty four hours a day. They like to select, like we do. You know, yep. they have a selection of what they can taste." Yep. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you don't have a just a bale of hay sitting there for them to pick through. Mm-hmm. You, oh, you yeah, do. I'll, I'll yeah, sit so that just a bale there. of hay, yeah. yeah. And, they'll, yeah. and they'll go through it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your, your challenge with that leaving it around, of course, is that they, you know, they'll, they'll poo on things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'll take some of the uh, hay from underneath, put it on this tray, and they can they can pick through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm, very interesting. And so, and just getting back to the rose farms, I thought, oh, perfect opportunity. I know a lot of people yeah. um, love hearing about roses. So, yes. um, do you water, do you irrigate what's, what you've got growing there, or you just let it be? Um, we do. We do have a, a watering systems. Yeah. I, I must confess, we're still researching that. <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing thing. Um, we've um, recently planted some. Um, a bed of roses that have been grown from cuttings and um, to explore what roses will do just from cuttings without them necessarily being grafted or butted onto rootstock. Um, and, but having said that, um, we do know that roses growing on rootstock will extend their roots down to the ground a long way, mm-hmm. anything up to three metres. Um, and we knew from, from the you know what we call the 13-year drought, which was up you know around Kilmore and, of course, 
generally throughout Australia, that people come to us and say, oh, you know, I'm losing other plants in the garden, even losing some natives, but the damn roses. But not the roses. Well, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. roses and agapanthus. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that was a part of it. And then we experienced the bushfires because the bushfires went through our garden and all the roses that were grown on rootstock, we lost them. Mm. And those that grew from cuttings, okay. they survived. Mm. So that is part mm. of what we're we're mm. working with, with um, you know, research and 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 trying to grow roses from each lot of cuttings. Mm. But each rose has a different root formation depending on the variety. So that's where we're particularly challenged, and we're also quite frankly challenged by now the Chinese market. And if roses from China get into Australia. Us growers will be particularly challenged because they'll be able to produce roses a lot cheaper than us. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason mm. because I, we can put out a, a, um, a grower cutting rose um, in in a bed of um, coconut fibre and have it land in our place as a little seedling for around about a um, dollar twenty, mm. and then we can, you know pot it on and grow it on, and um, that gives us the ability to, mm-hmm. to, to produce them a lot cheaper. Mm. So when they're not grafted, <coughs> yes, grafted when they're not grafted. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I, I had a question for Graham because mm-hmm. this is, and this is a bit of a long story, and I've talked about this before on here before. Mm-hmm. I have a rose that was named after my grandmother. Right. And um, I only discovered this a few years ago. Yes. And it's in an in an old diary, and it, I couldn't find it. I asked all the rose people that I knew, and um, couldn't couldn't get an answer from anyone, and. Uh, unbeknownst to me, my daughter Ellen took it on and eventually found it growing in a um, in a in a community-run rose garden in Bacchus Marsh. Right. And it's a it's a right Muller bred rose. Okay. So it's yes. an Australian bred rose. Um, yes. My grandfather was governor of New South Wales, so he oh, right. was automatically made the patron of the New South Wales Rose Society, mm-hmm. and, and my grandmother automatically had a rose named after her. So it's called Lady Woodward. Um, <clears throat> there was this one plant left in the in the in this garden in um, in Bacchus Marsh, and it was all um, because of John Neustig, who is a really well known rose, particularly Australian rose person. So mm-hmm. Alistair Clark roses, and he he he's, he's he was uh, president of the Plant Trust, mm-hmm. um, and he was. Um, his thing was preserving the Alistair Clark roses mm-hmm. and other Australian bred roses. Mm. And he gave his the collection to the Mattingly Park Gardens in Bacchus Marsh right. um, when he retired. And that's he how it has, ended up and there. That's how it ended up there. So mm-hmm. that's, we found it. I went up last year and um, took a whole lot of cuttings. Mm-hmm. And just before I was going up there, I actually heard you talking on radio about putting rose cuttings into Koya peat. Mm-hmm. And that sounded perfect to me. So I pre-filled all these pots with Koya mm-hmm. peat and I took them all up there and I put not only Lady Woodward but quite a few other roses into these, into these pots and I took them all back. And they did beautifully. So um, John actually, he sliced down the edge of each stem mm-hmm. to create a, a spot and we dipped them in honey because being an organic grower I won't put them in hormone powder. And they started growing beautifully. Mm-hmm. But in the end they all died. And, right. and I think I overwatered them. Mm-hmm. Because I have a tendency to think something needs water when mm. maybe it doesn't. So mm. I wanted to have a conversation with you because mm. I'm going back to try, <laughs> try again this year. To ravage the to owner's rosebush. No, <laughs> well, to ravage the one, no, when they prune it to, um, to, to collect more cuttings. Um, 
and because I have I have um, six siblings and there are 19 grandchildren and I mm. want all of them to have <laughs> a Lady Woodward mm. rose as well. Yeah. So. Um, Yes, so that's. Mm. I would like to know how to get it right. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Penny, I I think that 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 um, um, it's not easy to categorically say this is the only way to do it. Yeah. But from my experience, um, I've always taken cuttings. The most successful cuttings I've ever taken has been, have been in May. So okay. now's the time. Okay. Uh, that was for me. Um, and I also found your experience was my experience. Um, don't overwater them. Yeah. Um, so how do you know? I mean, how do you tell whether it needs watering, whether they need watering or not? Well, um, if 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 you're going to grow some, I'd suggest you grow some in some soil. Okay. Okay. So put cuttings into soil. Yes. Yeah. Um, but with taking those cuttings, whatever you do when you when you prune the end. And what John Neustig has um, obviously found too, um, yeah, make sure you've got good sharp sectors. Yeah. Because when you put them in the garden, you need to put in dibble stick. Mm. And for those listeners, a dibble stick can be a pen. Yeah. Push that into the soil first, nice and loose soil. Then slide, just slide the cutting in mm. and push the soil in around. Because what happens on the end of the cutting if you bruise that? That's where the rot starts. Okay, I did all that. Mm-hmm. I, I put the, I put the, I used a, a I think it was a pen actually, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to make the holes first. Yes. And I put the cuttings in straight away at the, mm. at, you know, where, where we took the cuttings. Mm-hmm. So I took the cuttings that John gave me, a big mm. bundle of them, and put mm-hmm. them in one by one. I put, mm. you know, six or so into yes. a, into a pot, you know, that size. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, when using coconut fibre, we use a seventy percent coconut fibre with thirty percent. Um, Bark. Okay. Okay, composted bark. Chips. Yep. Chips. So that'll give you drainage. Okay. And if you really wanted to, to um, check out what's happening with, with pots, um, you could get a moisture meter and pop a moisture meter in and, okay. and just check with that. Okay. And, yeah. and where would you keep it? You know, if you've got in, a tray of cuttings. In the shade. In the, yeah, it was definitely in the shade. Yes, good. Um, mm. it, but I just had it sitting on the ground in a tray mm-hmm. with some other plants that I was sort of nurturing. Right. Um, mm. So. Well. What? Yeah. So did you get growth and then yeah, they died growth, off? growth, terrific growth, and mm. then they started dying off. And I realised something was wrong mm. and I moved the healthier-looking ones away from the not-healthy-looking mm-hmm. ones and they, in the end they all died. You didn't pot them up at that point? No, because they didn't have roots. Mm. Oh, they so didn't they have they roots. they tend to, roses I've found when I've tried to grow them from cuttings, they can put on amazing leafy growth mm. but mm. actually have no roots at mm. all. So you need to leave them mm. there long enough mm. for the roots to start growing. Well... That's been, when, when you really start to get your leaf growing and yeah. you'll see the little buds will start, then certainly give them, again, liquid seaweed. Okay, because the, I didn't feed them at all. The, plants, the plant yeah. um, is saying that I need to be fed through the leaf. And there's some fairly substantial research done now in reference to feeding plants through the leaves. Mm, yeah. And okay. um, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to sort through that, but that's what I use, liquid seaweed. And I do use a fungicide. I use um, bicarbonated soda, okay. which is eco, eco fungicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Yep. Okay. Because they're so susceptible to fungus. So you would just water that over yep. the plant. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if you've got pots, concentrate on on the canopy or the the, the plant itself, not necessarily putting the water into the coconut fibre. Okay. 
Okay. I'm fascinated that the plant was growing so well without roots. Mm. It's common. It's, co- yeah. it's common that that yeah. happens yeah. with a lot of people. And But once you get it growing, I say to people, leave it in the pot until you start to see the roots coming out the bottom. Yeah, well, that's what I was mm. waiting for. But yeah. I, because they were starting, I needed to see if there was any chance of potting them on. Mm. Mm. Um, when a couple of them started dying off, and so I mm. pulled a couple, and there were no roots. Mm-hmm. I reckon you should put a couple in um, potting mix from the start and see what happens, because mm. I mm. remember going to this uh, furniture shop, and they had a um, a succulent plant growing solely in water, so mm. it was this massive, um, clear uh, bowl of water, almost like a giant fish bowl. Um, with a succulent on top, and it developed all these roots that you wouldn't usually see in a succulent plant. And mm-hmm. I just think they must develop different sort of root systems mm-hmm. or different ways of de- depending on the mm-hmm. media that they're yeah. in. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I reckon you've got to experiment, Penny. Put yeah, well, I, yes, I, I just I had these sort of half mm-hmm. of these dozen cuttings, Brilliant. and I just was trying to keep them, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it didn't mm-hmm. work. But John is um, doing some for me, grafting okay. them onto. Onto some rootstock as right. well. So with any luck, I'll have some of both. Yeah. But um, yeah. I, so. I think I think what you're saying. I always say to people, take an each way bet. Do some in the soil. Do some in maybe some mm. coconut fibre, and then do some in, in, in some open yeah. potting. Mix. I need mm. to get more cuttings so mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Mm. But yeah, it's an interesting sort of conundrum, isn't it? Because you've got this one special plant that mm. obviously is really precious, mm. and mm. you need to preserve it somehow. So how how is the health of the plant? How how is the is health it, of the it's plant? It's very healthy. Yeah, it's great. Good at the yeah. moment. And the and the group who runs the who runs the gardens they um, took some cuttings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did a, they had actually grown one from cuttings for me. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it turned out that it actually wasn't a lady woodwood when after I planted it and it mm. grew. So. Mm. We need to have sort of, and and the other thing that's that's happened is that I've now in the next issue of Organic Garden I've written about this whole story mm. um, about the rose and all this. Mm. this well, it's a fabulous thing. story. So, mm. And I was really chuffed that for the first time in a long time they've um, they've actually put my photo of my grandmother's rose on the front cover of the magazine. Mm-hmm. What mm. sort of rose is it? Like, what it's colour it's a hybrid tea and yep. it's a bright pink. Okay. Which is not really my colour, but I'll <laughs> <laughs> put it in the garden somewhere. <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, it's a beautiful rose. Mm. It's a really, it's the last, it's the last right Muller hybrid tea in existence. Well, so right. he bred quite a few of them, but mm. they've all disappeared. Mm. So well, there are some of his roses still around. I think one of them's Carabella. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. another couple of others, and they've they have a reputation of really being very tough. Yes. And, yeah. Well, and, he's uh, in New South Wales growing, mm-hmm, so you mm-hmm. know he would have to have bred things that survived mm-hmm. in more humid mm-hmm. conditions and that were relatively mm-hmm. tough. I would mm-hmm. have thought. Um, well, we're, we're starting to get a, a, a number of uh, breeders in Australia, mm-hmm. um, and especially in New South Wales, mm-hmm. New South Wales rose people um, are um, very active in in breeding mm. and um, of course we've also got the challenge of the World Rose Conference coming up in Adelaide. Yes, I've heard about that. That's and and right. they're, uh, they've got applications there for people to get a rose submitted for that to be part okay. of the theme yep. for the whole thing. So there's a whole lot of status with it. Mm. So they've got three years to sort of get there and um, it'll be interesting to see what actually developed. But we've got some roses from Bruce Brundrett uh, listed this year and they are listing yep. and we've had them, had them in the garden for um, well 12 months 18 mm. months and they've really performed very well Is this one of them, Graham? Uh, no, no, this is um, L, one mm. of the Meelands ones yeah. 
Well, mm. We will come back to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. No, that's fine. I'll just uh, read through. We've only got a few community announcements today. Uh, so the first is uh, an open garden that we've been mentioning for a couple of weeks. Uh, this is Neoka in Research. So it's at 105 Gumtree Road Research. Uh, it's open today from 10 till 4:30. Uh, the entry is $8 under 18 free. Students are $5. Neoka is an unusual and fascinating garden of many and varied succulents, recapturing the owner, Jack Latty's South African heritage. Entering the property, there is a bed of natives along the fence, followed by a large bed of agaves and, uh, and aloes. On the other side of the area is a propagation spot. The main garden is past the house where an array of Jack's fabulous pottery is beautifully displayed on tree bollards. A garden surrounds a pool area with unusual aloes, rocks and succulents, creating a stunning effect in colour and design. And, uh, yeah, so that's at 105 Gumtree Road in Research, which is out my way, so I might pop in on the way home. Um, Next weekend is uh, Botanic Gardens Day. And um, this is the Australia and New Zealand um, Botanic Gardens. And uh, so Botanic Gardens are increasingly being recognised as the front line in tackling the biggest challenges facing our future, food security, pest and disease eradication and adaption to a changing climate. To highlight this work, Botanic Gardens from Australia and New Zealand are hosting their third Botanic Garden Day. Um, on Sunday, the 27th of May, with an invitation extended to all. I did a quick search down at the uh, Geelong Botanic Garden. I couldn't find anything specific that was going on there, but if there is, we'll talk about it next week. Um, So down at the um, Cranbourne Gardens, down at uh, Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne, um, we can uh, learn about the vital role we play in conserving our Australian flora and fauna. Uh, join ecologist Dr Terry Coates on a walk through the bushland and learn how he helps protect the endangered southern brown bandicoot from predators and how he can secretly see who sneaks in and out of the Cranbourne Gardens at night, assuming he's talking about the bandicoots. Um, So that's next weekend, so that's Sunday the 27th of May. There's two uh, talks, so one's from... 11 till 12.30 p.m. and one is from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. and you can just go to the visitor centre at the Cranbourne Gardens. It's free and suitable for all ages. It does say bookings are essential. That is on the number to call for that is 5990-2200 or you can just hop on to um, the Botanic Gardens website and, and have a look for more info. There is a, um, a warning issued by the Department of Health and Human Services uh, for poisonous mushrooms, which are um, out and about at the moment. Um, yes, yeah, so Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Professor Charles Guest, has warned that autumn conditions have created ideal growing conditions for poisonous mushrooms. And uh, they advise avoid, avoid gathering mushrooms around Melbourne and rural Victoria, um, whether out in, out in the bush or in your own gardens. Um, the two that are most problematic are uh, the death cap fungus and the yellow staining mushroom. Yes, so um, those, those two. And you can um, hop onto their website 
um, which is health.vic.gov.au and um, just search for poisonous mushrooms and you'll be able to see um, both of those mushrooms. There's photos of those. So the death cap um, particularly is extremely toxic and responsible for 90% of all mushroom poisoning deaths. Um, sounds quite horrible. Um, a lot of nausea and um, diarrhea, which probably is the least of your concerns if you're about to die. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so both of those um, you can check out. And I had a um, quick squeeze at them. They do look, um, for me, who grew up sort of collecting mushrooms with my mum. Uh, in South Africa, they look different to me to the ones that I know to be edible. Mm. But I think people who don't haven't necessarily been brought up um, picking mushrooms with people who know um, it can be the yellow stainers are quite similar. But you can always pick a yellow stainer because if you rub your fingernail across the top, it stains yellow. It really does so come you up can, quite yellow. You can see yep. the yellow. But look, I, I think although the fungi, these these two fungi are really deadly, and there are some others that are not so good for you. There are some beautiful fungi out there, and I think one of the things that we sometimes do is people see fungi coming up in their garden and because somehow they think they're poisonous, they need to destroy them. Mm. Mm. And what you should do is watch them and enjoy enjoy them them and Mm. look at them and photograph them and go on to the, there's this fabulous fungi, fungi map website where you can actually put up your photographs and they'll tell you what it is that's coming up in your garden. And the thing that you need to remember is that this tiny little fungi or sometimes great big fungi is actually just the flower or the fruiting body of the mycelium that's underneath mm. the soil. Mm. So um, it's, a, it's a really important part of your garden ecosystem. So mm. you shouldn't be destroying them and pulling them out and throwing them away and doing some of the stuff that people do to them. You yeah, should just be yeah. enjoying, enjoying them. them. And, and talking about gorgeous. how plants grow quickly, I mean, boy, mm. did these guys yep. grow so fast, don't mm. they? They start pushing up sand or whatever, and you think, what's going on there? And then the next day there's a beautiful little clump of mushrooms. Mm. Mm. Um, then next week up at Euroa, there's a week of um, educational mm. um, seminars on fungi. Yeah. Okay. And if people want to make contact in reference to that, they could ring the Tourist Information Centre in, in the main street in Euroa yep. and they've got all those different seminars listed. Mm, okay, mm. that sounds really good. There's also a woman called Alison Puyo who um, does um, fungi tours. She takes she's usually amazing, booked out, aren't they? Yeah, she's an amazing <laughs> Years photographer. in advance. Mm. There's a, she's written a really nice article in the, in the current edition of Organic Gardener magazine and right. fabulous photography and just talking generally about about fungi and how important they are Mm, mm -hmm. and how they should be appreciated as this Mm. other plant life Mm. in our gardens instead of um, hated. And we had uh, uh, Greg Balderston on a few weeks ago and um, he's... uh, a bit of a, well, very much a a bulb expert, but he's also uh, a fungi enthusiast and was uh, telling us stories of how he traipses off into, he lives in the Macedon area, traipses off into the forest Mm. in the evening with his head torch and and dog and searching out mushrooms. Yeah, well, particularly things like some of the fluorescent mushrooms are just amazing. Yeah, Mm. beautiful. But there's, I know there's someone else who runs um, uh, mushroom tours in, around Red Hill, so down our way. Um, so if you if you get on the internet, you'll find people, and and that's the best way to find out what's harvestable and what isn't, mm. is to go mm. out with an expert, yes, mm. and actually be shown. And I wonder if the fungi uh, map uh, website would have links to different people who are giving uh, different talks. Possibly, I'm not maybe, sure because yeah. it would need to be updated all the time. It might, it of might course. not. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm and Penny Woodward. Uh, it's time now to invite people to call in with a question or a comment. Uh, so if you'd like to talk to us on air, you can call 94190155. And uh, Liz is manning the, womaning the outside line. Um, so if you'd like to call up and if you've got a gardening question but you don't want to go on air, you can call Liz on 94198377 but to talk to us on air it's 94190155 Graham I want to get back to the uh conversation that we were having off air about uh seaweed about seaweed yeah yes. yeah and and the growing of it because I've often thought that with um the harvesting of seaweed I thought we harvest so much that supposedly waste seaweed just lying around on the beaches mm. but as we know in nature really nothing goes to waste so mm. I did wonder what impact that has on the environment which I think is at King Island mm-hmm. where a lot of it is um, taken from mm. um so I was fascinated to hear that um people are actually growing seaweed mm-hmm. Growing it, and but most of the seaweed, as I understand from King Island, and I've been there, and one of our surprise for years, uh, obtained seaweed from King Island mm-hmm. and took it up to Maroochydore in Queensland. And I said to them, "Why do you take it to Maroochydore? Why don't you process it, King Island?" They said, "No, no, we process it with the heat of Queensland in stainless steel vats, and that's part of their process, natural mm-hmm. process." And that seaweed is taken from the beach, which has become detached from the ocean or the ocean floor, and it's placed on racks. So it's part of the process, the cycle of the seaweed that, that happens anyway. So yep. it's in that particular case, and I don't know whether it applies to what, for instance, happens in China or other places, but in, in the King Island case, it's all part of um, the just normal process of what happens with seaweed once it's detached and washes up. Yeah, I, I guess for me the the thing that always worries me, and I know that a lot of people work incredibly hard to harvest sea- seaweed sustainably, yeah. um, but it's a bit like the leaves that fall off the trees. Mm. Um, you know, if you take them away, they're not replenishing the yeah, soil, whereas sure. the seaweed that ends up on the beach, it feeds the... The animals that live underneath mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. it also gets washed back into the water and sometimes sinks mm. and it provides nutrients to mm-hmm. the other plants that mm. are growing. And I know down in Western Port Bay we have these huge seagrass fields mm. and people can get permits to come and harvest seagrass mm. off the beach. And there are times when there are huge mountains of seagrass. Mm. Um, but it is still all part of the mm. natural process. Mm. And I think that I think that it, when it's done in a small way... Mm. It's not a problem, but when you get industrial-scale harvesting, mm. mm-hmm. even if it is stuff that's become detached, that's when mm. I start worrying about it. Mm. Yeah, because it's all part of those food webs and chains, mm. and just yeah. because we don't know what happens to it or what critters use it, like to us mm. it's waste, so therefore... I just think, yeah, we need to really take a look at what part this seaweed, as Penny was saying, mm. plays in the in the broader environment. Because mm. there's so much about the ocean that we don't understand. So, oh, and and sure. look, I'm not criticising the companies. I think most of them try really hard mm. to do the right thing. Mm. But it's just something that we can't take for granted. I think mm. in these things, you've mm. got to keep questioning it all the time and, yep, and sure. making sure that you know that well, you're doing the best thing possible. Well, as I understand it, in, in, in the larger ocean areas where, where they're really working on it now, because it's all part of this carbon yep. um, 
yep. debate. Yep. Um, they're actually c- cultivating it in 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 rafts on rafts. Yeah, and part of, and part of what they're mm-hmm. doing there is that they're they're actually taking some of the carbon out of the mm-hmm. water that's accumulating in the water and making it more acid mm-hmm. by growing the seaweed. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they're ameliorating some of the. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the climate change effects mm. that mm-hmm. is that is happening to mm. a lot of our oceans too. Mm. So, you know, you just you, with all these things, with these new things, they seem amazing. You do mm. just keep need to checking mm. what other what yes. unthought of effects, effects. Mm. are happening as a result of yep. what you're doing. Yeah, mm. and what we can do as gardeners at home that maybe we don't need to buy as much uh, fertiliser, even, you know, seaweed uh, products. You know, Mm. can we create our own compost piles, make compost tea, have earthworms, use Mm. worm weed, that that sort of thing, just Mm. do it on a smaller scale? I Mm. think worm farms for me. I'm now putting more into worm farms than I'm putting into compost almost. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm using, I'm I'm mulching a lot of stuff in my garden and putting it sort of straight back on the surface of the soil. Um, Mm -hmm. But my main nutrients are now coming from worm farms rather than compost. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sim- 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 simple mul- mulching of the garden is, yeah. is absolutely important, yep. I- yeah. imperative. And, um, you know, you start to talk about some people that in the farming world used to talk about the sc- scorched earth policy. And, of course, that was around the debating of, of, of weeds. And, and weeds in, in cropping areas are, are a really huge challenge. Yeah. Yep. Um, there was a recently um, some talk on the ABC about a um, system that they've been working in Western Australia with with um, uh, robots mm-hmm. and the drones, mm-hmm. and they have been effectively working to um, only spray. This is for weeds in mm. big acreage areas where the actual weed is, mm. and they've reduced their their weedicide consumption of anything up to ninety percent. Because of this technology that can just zone in totally on the particular mm, weed yeah. and mm, bang, yeah. um, and and just as a as a gauge on what the what is happening at a government level, um, I believe there was a delegation sent to um, um, Germany to do more research on weedicides, and of course our challenge in Australia is to um, find a, an alternative to Roundup or glyphosate, and um, they're, they're now working on uh, that as a process, and I believe there was something like $5 million allocated for those people that went to Germany to do research on, on these weedicides. So mm. there's, it's, it's obviously in some quarters been taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. Now mm. we just need to develop a drone that sees a weed and goes down and, and mm. picks Pulls it out, it out. Rather, yeah. rather than yeah. sprays yeah. it with something. Because yeah. 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 there's some really interesting stuff happening in the organic fields as well with... with um, Slashing of weeds and throwing them back onto mm-hmm. the area that is being farmed as, mm. as for nutrient. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there, there are people designing machinery that mm. can do these sorts of things mm. um, that can be towed along behind your tractor. Mm. Mm. So you know there are other things that you can do with weeds mm. that, that don't involve um, spraying. Well, that's what we've started doing now. We and leave it in situ. Yeah. And mm. then the insects come in and, and start doing their thing, and then it's a, another yep. food source for the little wrens that are there. Yep. Um, and then you don't have to take it away and either burn it or compost it or mm. do whatever with it. You just pull it yep. out, turn it upside down, and leave it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, mm. that's what I do in all my areas of the garden. So a lot of it just stays where, you, where I pull it out of the ground. 
Yep. Mm. Less maintenance. Mm. <laughs> yes. We've been um, um, taking some weeds out, putting them in a, a hessian bag, mm. and immersing them in water, water. and using them yeah. as a as a, um, a, a, a organic um, compost liquid. tea almost. Yeah. yeah. Compost yeah, yeah, tea. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, it's it's the variation that each weed likes um, in in its own situation. And to to draw on uh, on those minerals that come from the soil, it can mm. be useful, usefully put back in the garden. And of course, you can take that liquid um, fertilizer and put it back onto your compost heap again. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And you can also, what I um, created for it was actually a project that I did for the Habitat book that's coming out um, with the compost tea. You can have a huge uh, square, well, square or rectangular container, just one of the plastic ones from Bunnings, um, put some mesh sort of roughly down the middle of it and um, fill it with water and then on one side of the mesh you add um, something like a bucket of compost and just as many weeds as you can pos- possibly squish in there. Um, I added um, a half a cup of molasses because mm-hmm. that encourages that mm. bacterial, although some people are against that, but some people say it's um, beneficial mm-hmm. and encourages that, um, yeah, the, the, the bacteria. And um, and then I put in an, an aquarium bubbler mm. and let it sit in bubble, so I kept it really oxygenated for 24 hours and um, then watered that on the plants. Mm-hmm. And that is one way of really increasing what you were talking about, Penny, that and microbial activity mm. in the soil. So there's plenty of ways, and, and that way you get rid of the compost, you get, get rid of your weeds, you can yep. actually use them for something really beneficial, and it didn't take much, mm. much uh, work It's a at particularly all. good way of getting rid of weeds where you've got weed seed issues. Yep. So, you know, if you've, if you've got things that where the seed is going to hang around, yep. you're better off not putting that in compost. You, you're better off, you know, making a weed tea out of it if yep. you can. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so mm, we have the, we have the same recipe in the tomato book. Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> I didn't copy it. <laughs> no, 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 it was Karen who mm. put it in. There. I did copy yeah. your, with permission, of course, your bat box instructions. Yeah. So yeah, yeah no, yeah. That, that was terrific. So although there's an interesting article in today's age looking at um, at boxes for mammals and birds and things like that, so mm-hmm. um, those sort of things, and the research that they're doing is, and you've probably covered this in your book, but. Um, this team of people have been doing, they've found that actually using a chainsaw to create a hollow in a tree yep. is a much better way of doing it than having a box because the box walls are too thin and, and it can actually end, if you've got them in the wrong position, it can end up cooking the babies and yep. all that sort of thing. Cut in so hollows. Yeah. Yeah. In hollows. yeah. So I think it's terrific yeah. and yeah. for uh, experienced arborists only. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, but I think the other thing that comes into that is that, you know, Sometimes you do have to cut down trees, but hmm. you don't have to cut them down to ground level. That's you right. can cut them way above your head with the, just the thick branches, and you can leave them to form their own natural hollows. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, or and help them, as you or say. Or help them yeah, by get, using, get, get someone yeah. with a chainsaw and, and make them for you. But hmm. you know, we have this idea that you've, with trees you've got to cut them down and then grub out the stump. You know, you actually don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know there's a few councils that are using that technique now, and they mm. just cut.
cut off a like a face plate out of the thick branch or even the mm. trunk if it's dead and create that hollow, drill a, a big hole into the, the face plate, mm. so an access hole, and screw it back in place. So it's exactly like the tree. You've got all those, um, yeah, the, the temperature buffering mm. uh, qualities of, of the trunk itself. And, yeah, and I just think terrific way to go and mm. then grow a couple of vines up it and... Yeah, perfect yep. little habitat. Yes. And and the thing is, we don't know uh, who's going to use what. So there's there's a lot of uh, uh, recipes, I'll say, for mm. around different bird boxes and mm. mammal boxes mm. and whatnot. But the fact is that um, different critters will might use them. Uh, yep. We had a, a box put up supposedly for sugar gliders, and um, it was ignored for years and years, and, and we never really knew why. And then uh, my bees. Um, took off and took up residence in, in this particular box, but they didn't stay for very long. And again, we couldn't figure out why. And then uh, one day there was a storm and it completely collapsed, the whole box, and it was rotted. Okay. Uh, and mm. that, you know, we didn't know why no one was using it, but that was yeah. obviously why. They mm. knew that it was rotten, but, mm. uh, yeah, we mm. didn't until the storm came through. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean the thing is, you you don't know who's going to use Move what. In. That's yes. right. That's yeah. right. And um, yeah, in in the book, I've got a uh, uh, instructions on creating a baffle, which you can a, a lot of times uh, people put up boxes uh, for a particular type of native bird and, and Indian miners like yep. to take up residence or starlings. Uh, but by creating this baffle, which you'd probably know about, Penny, it's just like a basically an overhanging veranda. Mm-hmm. Um, Suddenly, your Indian miners and starlings aren't interested because they like to fly straight, straight into in. the box, whereas yeah. parrots and whatnot are happy to climb around mm-hmm. the baffle. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's all these little, little tricks. tricks of the trade. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so we should uh, invite listeners again to give us a call if you feel like ans- asking a gardening question. Uh, to talk to us on air is 94190155, or to talk to Liz off air. If you've got a gardening issue, 94198370. I'm A.B. Bishop, and in the studio with me are Penny Woodward and Graham Sargent. Um, Graham, you were uh, waving a newspaper at me earlier. Should we oh, have yes. a chat about that? I, I bought this in, um, this paper, which is called The Land, and there's, a, there's a, um, an edition of it that's uh, issued in New South Wales, and another edition that's issued in Queensland comes out once a week. And I find it really, really interesting to um, um, get as a as a paper mm. to find out what's happening in in some of the latest developments in research and development, uh, looking at different composts for broadacre areas as well as smaller areas. Yeah. Um, uh, research with different um, plant varieties, uh, grains, and all that sort of thing. And there is a, there is a. a, a slant back towards animals and animal welfare mm. as well mm. and that's one of the challenges we have I'm, I am um, I'm one of those people that uh, after experiencing the, the two big bushfires are still very much aware of what happens with our grasses and the, mm. the advantage that cattle and sheep have in um, in rural areas and um, so I, you know I recommend to people that if they're really interested in this sort of thing the land is very good uh, as as a paper you can also access it online. Yeah, sure. So mm-hmm. if you don't want to actually go out and buy mm-hmm. the paper, I don't mm-hmm. think everything is there, but there's a lot of it is actually online. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, I've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, I've found it over the years to be really up to date with 
what's happening. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a lot of research in, in rural areas that um, city people don't hear about. Yeah. And there's a very strong consciousness in, in the farming world um, about the gap between the city and, and, and the country mm-hmm. and, and um, that divide, especially when it comes to things like food and food production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and the farming world now is, is really advancing in terms of um, putting out products that are um, unique, yeah. Um, like, um, for instance, jams and pickles mm-hmm. and those sort of things. And a lot of the old farming families, of course, work with these things um, because it's very traditional in their family. Yeah. And um, now we're starting to see an enormous number of these sort of products on the shelf in um, boutique um, places mm. as well as supermarkets, mm. which is really yeah. good. Mm. Yeah. And, and we're getting back to that interesting taste. You know, I was read mm. on three veggies and, 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 and a chop. And I think how bland that food was way back then, you know, because I'm old, <laughs> way back then. And, you know, my mum come off a farm at, 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 um, near Warrigal, and that's pretty much what, you know, they, they knew at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and very, very challenged in the family with iodine and iodine deficiencies. You know, I'd, I had a mum born in the Q Mental Hospital because mm-hmm. her mother was there with a nervous breakdown, mm-hmm. been there three times. And found out it was iodine. Iodine. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And down through Gippsland, especially, there's patches in Gippsland mm. where iodine's missing. And um, I believe that um, there are some bakers that actually introduce iodine into the bread, mm-hmm. and it's part of what happens in that area. In, in that particular community. Mm. 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 Yep. Very yeah. interesting. And yeah. we had a, um, a listener call in just talking, or I suppose questioning, um, whether methane is an issue in regards to compost teas. Um, either of you have any Look, all composts give off methane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the hotter the compost that you make, the less methane yeah. it gives off. Um, but, look, I think on the small scale that, that we do these things mm. and, and the fact that we're not transporting things, you know, mm. it, it's mm. so hard the to balance. know when, yep. you, when you're doing these things, you know, what is the right thing to do. It's like... I, I don't take any green matter out of my garden at all, but to do that, I run a petrol running mulcher, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's a decision that I've made because mm. I think it's better to do that than to send all my green matter away, and yeah. I like to know what's actually going into my garden so I know when I'm mulching up my branches mm. and, and green matter, I know exactly where it's come from, mm. and, and it's going back into my garden. Um, but there are some people who would tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing there mm. but yes you do um because of the bacteria that are breaking down the you will get some methane mm. yeah mm. Mm. but yeah as you say it's a decision making you know do i bring in products from yeah. outside and who knows where they were made or how they were made or whatever or do yeah. i do it small scale mm. for myself and, and try and keep it all yeah. sort of within house in house so, yes mm. exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> And I, it's funny that I nearly said to you a minute ago that the Weekly Times is a really good newspaper yes. mm. for similar things yep. to yes. the land and mm. one of our listeners is running mm. and oh, I'm, said I'm the same thing. A devotee yeah. of, of Peter Cundall, he yeah. brings up some interesting subjects. And, yeah. Can I, um, can I just say that um, uh, this is probably not general news quite yet, but um, Peter's not writing for Organic Gardener anymore. Mm. Oh, right. Um, but he is going to continue writing for the Weekly Times oh, for right, a while. Oh, right, okay. So good. Yeah, That's so good. it's great that he's that he's still writing, but he's just decided that he 
needs to cut back a little bit mm. more at the age of 92. <laughs> yeah, so, sure. Which I think is perfectly reasonable. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, the Weekly Times, I mean, that's the, the paper that I buy if I want to get my, mm-hmm. you know, fix on the mm. land, basically. Mm. But mm. I think that one might even be more appropriate. Uh, and the interesting thing in the Weekly Times, I've noticed in the last 18 months or so, they've got some really what I call good news stories. Yeah. And the good news stories about are about the farming community and the, a lot of the successes that they've had with um, branching out and, and, for instance, making their own cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, look, uh, there's some brilliant, brilliant yeah. things happening mm. in, in, in our rural communities mm-hmm. with, with, these, with products that are... So they're not just sending their raw product off. They're no, actually diversifying on the farm. Diversifying, yeah. actually, yeah. on the farm. And I, mm. um, one of the organisations that I, that I um, always keep an eye on is a company called Farmhouse Direct, which is actually run by Australia Post. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not Farmer Direct, which has gone into liquidation. It's called Farmhouse Direct. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it links small growers or, or growers with the general public. So mm-hmm. you can access, they have um, this whole, there's this whole big website that is run by Australia Post, but individual farmers have their products on. There's about 40 different garlic growers who are, who are on Farmhouse Direct. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything from from traditional Australian plants made into jams and jellies mm-hmm. and a whole range of different things to dried herbs to um, bananas to apples um, to maybe things you couldn't access through your supermarket. Yeah, yep. yeah. So they have this huge range of of different things. Um, and if so, if you want to make direct contact with a with a farmer, this is a really good way. To do it. Well, Graham and I are busy scribbling it down so that we remember Farmhouse Direct. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, have you got anything up there? I, look, I had my garlic book yeah. up there for a while, yeah. um, but in the end I took it down because I wasn't selling very many, But um, and they don't generally do books. This was to sort oh, yeah. of support the garlic mm-hmm. sales, was to have the garlic book up there. But uh, it, just the way it worked out, it was easier for me just to keep selling it from home, from myself, than mm-hmm. doing it through Farmhouse Direct. But, um, yeah, it, there's a lot of farmers who sell a lot of product through mm. farmhouse direct. So, yes, oh, which is excellent. great. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Now we should get to uh, so callers. Uh, let's go to Pippa in Sydenham. Hi, Pippa. Oh, good morning to you all. Uh, just uh, on the topic of um, uh, iodine. Iodine. Um, you are aware that it was our wonderful scientists in Australia in the agriculture area that recognised the further inland you were, the greater the need of iodine in your salt. And it was the Chinese government that uh, requested our scientists to go over to China and um, organise the um, release of tonnes and tonnes of um, iodised salt for the uh, population that was suffering severely from the uh, goiter and Mm. the associated diseases without having iodine in them. And that's one of the major triumphs our two governments together, Australia and China, should be congratulated in working together for their own populations. Uh, And I wasn't surprised when you said in uh, that area, uh, Warrigal, that there was a, a dearth in, um, in salt. Now, our food manufacturers in Australia should only be using iodized salt 
uh, rather than the cheap rubber because of that uh, in after the war in Europe it was a major problem inland in Europe people uh, developing goiters through the lack of iodine in their salt and it was such a simple and low cost um, fix to the problem major health issue and there we are Mm. I, I think we forget sometimes the legacy of science and the you know mm. the things that our scientists have done and, mm. and you know I think it's really important that we recognise it and mm. we've now got another yeah. message up there telling us actually who, the name of the professor who um, isn't that marvellous <laughs> <laughs> Professor now, Eastman look, yeah. so it was Professor Eastman apparently so I, I, I love our audience I just think you know yeah. whenever we start talking about something there's always someone out there who knows, who knows more than all we do absolutely well, well you see you can retire from study but you you learn something every day and it's nice to remember the good points in in all of that humanity but separate to that hmm. knowing that we're going to have um, less rain therefore water uh, and I love my garden. I did place Sir Walter Raleigh down underneath my deciduous trees, and it grows a treat on that clay soil. But I'm wondering if I should get rid of it. And I say this because after 10 years' observation, I've noticed the finer run, is it? A, it's a very fine grass. I think they, they incorporate it in the normal... Um, uh, grass seed is, you know, you sprinkle it on. Now that's remained and is marvellous. It does have a, a creeping effect, very fine blue-grey leaf grass and very low. It looks like the grass you may use in a golf course. Like I found that that is establishing itself where the other ones through the disasters of the heat waves has persisted. And on the other side where I have the... Uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, I'm wondering if I should get rid of that because I have lost my little blue butterflies that come in in, uh, in spring. And the, I, I'm saying I think I lost some diversity in my garden. I've still got the blue banded bees and uh, the moths and everything else which I love and a large assortment of spiders. But um, it's the smaller butterflies that have lost their landing points on the grass. Do you think I should remove my Sir Walter Raleigh? I, I, I wouldn't be removing something that's doing well. I'd be looking at, mm. um, at adding to it with, you know, with maybe some other um, grasses that provide a more um, diverse habitat. Diversity. So mm. around the edges, putting in maybe some native grasses um, rather than removing something that's, that is surviving and doing okay. Mm. That saved me a lot of effort too. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> indeed. I think I'll take up your suggestion. Thank you. Oh, good on you, Pippa. That was a a, a good uh, point of conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Pippa. Mm. Bye for now. Bye. Yeah, that that is interesting though about the iodine. I, I had mm. no idea mm. that. Yeah, it was introduced into China. But yeah, mm. and, and I suppose that's where um, the uh, the iodized salt came in. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. all to yeah, yeah. not being part, not being around at that point in time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 
in but that. But look, yeah. you can also have too much iodine. So yeah, it's, you've sure. got to get the balance yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Too. So Actually, I bred budgies when I was a kid, and that was the fashion when you had had budgies. You always put some iodine in their water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, Penny, your caution is also important mm. too, because I thought there was a time when I thought there's something a bit odd here. This is not quite right, <laughs> um, and, and it was necessary to um, um, measure. Mm. Or use it, say, you know, two or three times, uh, maybe a week, and then, yep. you know, just because something's good, it doesn't mean yeah, that yeah, more, that's more is better. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I don't <laughs> mean it has some um, big repercussions if you do have too much mm. in regards to your thyroid. Mm. Mm. Uh, I remember a few years ago there was a, a particular soy milk mm. that um, used some sort of seaweed in, mm. in mm. their um, soy milk product yeah. and uh, a class action was actually taken against them mm. because mm. people were developing all these thyroid issues and it was found that the, the iodine content was, was yep. yeah, too, mm. too high. Uh, uh, very interesting. All right, well, let's go to uh, Jill in East Brighton. Hi, Jill. Hello, Abby, and look, thank you for your program. Just terrific, and I love Pippa's, uh, you know, interesting observations. Obviously, she's, she's very observant. And, uh, and uh, look, what I was ringing about was actually to, just a follow-up to one of the points you just made about the baffle on the um, nesting box. Oh, yes. I've got two nesting boxes uh, at Dramana, our place there, and um, they we've had... Um, uh, crimson rosellas breeding in them, but it is a ongoing battle to keep the common miners out. And um, I've, you know, I've removed in one season up to four nests. I wait till the till the miners um, lay their eggs, so maximum investment. <laughs> then I climb up and remove remove the nest. But um, you know, it, you can see. And then just last week, I was down at Dramana. We're not there all the time, so I can't always be there to stop. You know the, the feral birds making a start, um, uh, but this time I saw a starling, uh, you know, coming in mm-hmm. to investigate the box with, a, with its with its uh, cohort of family, and immediately the crimson rosellas they all turned up too, but they were sitting back and the starlings were being more aggressive, and I managed because the, um, the parrots were off to one side, uh, I was at the window. I stepped back so the parrots couldn't see me, but the starling could and started madly leaping up and down and <laughs> making threatening gestures. <laughs> and you could see, and it went, oh, okay, and flew off. But she did persistent. It only flew a little distance. It was still looking back to see if I was there. Uh, so I kept this up for some time until it finally did go right away. Um, but I was just wondering how close the baffle should be, because I don't want to brain the parrots as they come in. Um, uh, and... Yes, so, you know, is it how high above the actual hole, the entrance, should the baffle be? Because yeah. I thought I'll add those and see how it goes. Yeah, well, it's um, it's obviously added on to the box itself. Yes, um, It's yes. usually about 10 centimetres above. But, um, Jill, if yeah. you give your email address to Jan, um, when you go back through to Jan, um, I'll, I'll forward you the exact details of how to make them. Oh, look, that would be great. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I, I, I have, I've got a wonderful friend who's a bird watcher and a handyman who made the nesting boxes. Uh, but if there was no mention in the books we got of a baffle. So, yeah, that would be fantastic. I, I'll do that. Um, and the other thing I was just going to say about Pippa's blue butterflies, um, I don't really have a lawn as such. 
and I have lots of blue butterflies in my garden. I know the little ones she means. I think they're, they're you know, the, the small ones. They're gorgeous. And they seem to be happy on a whole range of plants. So I think that whatever has, um, you know, stopped them visiting her garden might be a, a general phenomenon, not necessarily something that's happened in her garden. Mm. Um, not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it down to a lack of particular grass species because they seem pretty... Um, you know, they're on my salvias and uh, daisies and mm. uh, unless she's talking about the caterpillar stage. But, you know, I don't have a lawn as such and I have heaps of them. Mm. Yeah. So, I, just, I just think with all of these things, it's mm. diversity that we need to be going for. Yes. Mm. So, yes. you know, if you can yes. create diversity, then you're, you're halfway there. And, yes. and, and, and it can vary from season to season. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And can I also thank you for showing us about how to make that better hotels i'm going to have a go at that now <laughs> excellent <laughs> yes that was very good instructions penny yeah, no fabulous Thank fabulous. You. fabulous okay look I'll, I'll give my um email address so you can so that so that can be said i'm very grateful oh, Thank you. you're welcome jill okay all right talk to you bye. soon bye yeah bye and we've had a listener uh, off air, Ruth, um, from Bentley East, would like to know if it's okay to use the eco-fungicide instead of copper spray on her fruit trees. Absolutely. Mm. I'd say yes. yes. So, and look, if you're ever worried, if you, if you do end up having to use a copper or a, mm. or a sulphur or a lime sulphur spray, which are, they're the two that I turn to if I have to use something, um, I one of the things that you can do is cover the ground with a sheet of plastic mm-hmm. or so newspaper or newspaper yep. or just something, um, and you you leave it there for two or three days um, mm. until there's any chance of anything that you've put on has washed off. Um, then you remove it and you put a layer of compost over the soil, and that returns a lot of the fungi. If you've killed some of the fungi off, that will return some of the fungi yep. to the soil. Mm. But it's mainly copper that I would stop using because of its accumulation. Mm. Yep. 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 Even yep. though it's a certified organic product, um, I, I haven't used it now for three or four years. Mm. Mm. Yep. Excellent. One of the things I actually forgot to mention in the community announcements, uh, I know somebody who's selling a very large staghorn fern that's... Uh, fallen, it was growing in a very big tree and it's fallen out of the tree and landed in a pile on the ground. It's huge. It's over um, a metre in diameter and um, she's interested in selling it. So if anybody, uh, she's in the Macclesfield area, which is sort of Sylvan uh, Monbulk around there. Um, So if anybody is interested in talking to Rhonda about uh, buying this staghorn fern, I'm sure you'll be able to um, pull it apart in situ and uh, transport it like that rather than taking the whole thing. Uh, You can uh, give uh, us a call here on uh, 94198377 and just have a chat with Liz and, and she'll be able to give you Rhonda's details. So that's a very large stack on fern and Rhonda sent me a photo and it's, it's huge and looks extremely healthy. So, yeah, there you go. Passing on, passing on plants, exactly. Things, yes. Absolutely. So, Graeme, what is your... You didn't bring a rose in, but you brought in a photo of a rose. I brought in a photo of a rose <laughs> and of, of all things, it's called L E. Double L E, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, we don't. There's no royalties go to that set lady. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it's bred by the famous Milan family, the people that bred the famous Peace Rose, mm-hmm. and it's a. What would you describe that as, Penny? 
it's a sort of dusky pink with dusky. a bit of pale. Sort of, there's a bit of yellow through yes, it as well. Of, it's, a yeah. very, it's a sort of very pretty rose, and mm. it's a nice. It, it, without being sort of all fluffy and too over dense, mm-hmm. it is a fairly dense rose. So yes. there's a lot of petals in it. Lots, lots of petals, and it has an absolutely amazing perfume. Okay. Fantastic yeah. perfume that that people will put their nose in as they come to our our garden and say, "Oh, smell that!" Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh ah, we say. So is and, it uh, is it one that some money is going from something to? Well, so many of them now raise money. Yes, for, they mm, are. And um, n- well, it's no, there's there's nothing actually specified it's, it's, about it. Okay. No. But um, the Milan family, of course, have got. Um, Roses like Best Friend and Fiona's Wish, that uh, some money from those go to uh, charities as well. Yeah. But, um, again, perfume is very, very... Um, and what sort of rose is it? It's a, it's a hybrid tea. Yeah. Uh, the bush will grow around about half a metre in height. Okay. And um, so far in our garden, it's been very healthy. Okay. Really done well. Mm-hmm. Mm, very um, beautiful colour. And someone sent me a link the other day to a black rose. Mm-hmm. Is there a black rose out there, or was that uh, a trick? If, if, you, if you're looking at black roses, um, the biggest challenge with black roses is because they're black, they will burn in the, in the sun's heat. Um, and um, So there is a black rose? Yes, yes. Mm. There's, there's one called Taboo. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a cut flower, uh, black rose, but I... I, I won't mention that because it's very difficult to get. Mm. Again, if you grow a black rose in a hot house, again you've got the challenges with burning. Mm. And uh, but if you're looking at a, a really really dark rose, um, Camp David is very good. Mm-hmm. And um, Papa Milan is mm. one that stood the test of time. Papa Milan's got a, a very shiny um, black finish to it, um, and it's a it's a velvet mm. colour. And I believe in that case, that case, that rose has been out for nearly 50 years. That because it, it shines, it reflects the heat off the petals, mm-hmm. which, okay. which is a, which I, is. A, I used uh, to grow a beautiful, really dark rose called Black Boy, which mm-hmm. is, I would think these days, totally inappropriate mm-hmm. name mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a rose. Is that mm-hmm. one still in existence? Mm-hmm. And, and has it been renamed, or no. it's still called Black Boy? Yeah, it's, it's an Alistair Clark rose. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's a stunning rose. I, yes. I love that. It's a climber, isn't it? Well. Um, Penny, I must say, so that, that, that in the nursery when people come in and say, I want that black boy that my grandma yeah. had 50 yeah. years ago. Okay. And that always amazes me. You'll, you'll, you'll take them other roses and you'll say, smell that one. Mm. No, it's not that one. Smell this one. No, it's not that one. <laughs> smell this one. That's it. And you know those people remember from 50 mm. years ago mm. what the perfume's like. Yep. You know? yep. And um, there's a lot of roses out there called Black Boy that aren't Black Boy. Okay. And I'm not saying that yours mm. is not Black Boy. Yeah, but no, well, I don't have it anymore. So no, um, no. I mean, I'd love, mm. to, I'd love to get it again. For that mm. same, for me, and this is what I said in the article that I've written for, for Organic Gardener, uh, you know, why do you choose a particular rose when you've got mm. 3,000 mm. or more mm. roses mm. to choose from? Mm. And for me, it's often about the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the 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 well the smell um, mm. and the look obviously but but it's the story behind it mm-hmm. and the name of the rose yes 
So I, there's another really lovely dark flowered rose called Alex's Red, which mm-hmm. um, I, I have a lovely friend whose name is Alex, mm-hmm. and, and I grew that for many years because mm-hmm. of um, this person whom I'm very fond of. Mm-hmm. And we all do these emotional things mm-hmm. in our gardens, mm-hmm. and, and it can be very, particularly with roses, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alex's Red was bred by Alex Cocker from Scotland. Okay. And um, that, that's got an amazing perfume. That yeah. is fantastic. And it's another really lovely dark red. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. and um, yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm also very fond of the single flowered roses, so mm-hmm. the things okay. that don't have a lot mm-hmm. of and have these amazing stamens in the mm-hmm. middle. Mm-hmm. These, you know, so things like mermaid, which doesn't mm-hmm. have a really good scent, but no. I, I love it as a rose. Well, we usually say that if people start to look at single roses, they need to be very careful because they could turn into a connoisseur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you were going to say, because they could take over your garden, because they can be pretty rampant as yeah. well. Yeah, well, we've got Knockout now, which is a single yeah. um, uh, sort of red, but it's not... It's a medium, what I call yeah. a medium red, and that's that's really been fantastic. In, in it's going to be one of those that it's going to be really good in landscapes. Okay. Um, yes. While we're talking about um, Alistair Clark roses too, the Alistair old the old Buller Shire Hall. Yep. Um, yeah, has there's a fabulous, a fantastic uh, yeah. garden there. Yeah. And before you go down the gap at Buller, it's on on the right. And it's a bluestone building, and that garden's careful by the city of Hume. Yep. And they really do a good job looking after it. And they have a fantastic catalogue that's mm-hmm. downloadable on the internet. All so right. if you want mm. to see what they're growing there mm. and look at all the Alistair Clark, I think mm. they've got 69 Alistair Clark mm-hmm. roses in the mm. garden. Mm. D- it looks beautiful. I haven't mm. been there, but I was doing all this mm. research for the article on it. So. If people go there, um, park around, you can park right around the back. Yep. Because it's a bit hazardous on the main road okay. and up the side street. So if you go up the back, you'll see there's a car park at the okay. back. You can park in there, and then you can you, you can get in there any time, 24 yep. hours a day. But probably yeah. now is not the best time of year. No, no, it's look. usually it's, it's real best in in springtime. Yeah. And getting on on breeding, Alistair Clark had a garden at at, at Buller. Yep. And he had a garden in granite soil, you know, mm. and like mate, that just drains off mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. yeah. and. Of course, he did have a number of gardeners. I believe yeah. that someone said yeah. he had about seven gardeners. But um, uh, his challenge was to grow roses in that sort of soil yep. and have them survive through you know, the normal su- mm. summer period. Mm. And mm. He, he really achieved that really yeah. very well yeah, with look, a he was lot of roses. really interesting man. And yes. Tommy, Tommy Garnett, who's another really interesting man and gardener, wrote a really good book. Mm-hmm. About Alistair Clark and mm. his family and his roses, yes, and, you know, the whole story. And he searched the world for them and, yeah. and come up with yeah. um, uh, roses from the Himalayas and mm. yeah, mm. yeah, Rosa Gigantia. Yeah, because yeah, there's about 50 species roses, mm-hmm. so original species mm. that are found all over the world, mm-hmm. um, and that's where all our current roses come from. Is that surprises from me that there's only that. That many. Yeah. I mean, we are surrounded by roses. Yeah, mm. but these are the actual species. <laughs> yeah, so, rose species and yeah. all the ones that, you know, the, there's something like 30,000 have probably been produced oh, over time. Mm. Um, mm. But we've lost as many because mm. if mm. people don't grow them and don't mm. preserve them, then, then we don't keep mm. them. So. Mm. Similar to Corias, I suppose. There's 11 yeah. species of Corias and millions of yes. uh, cultivars. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now, Liz uh, from Mount Macedon has called in and wanted to give us a comment that she's got two roses growing under a giant sequoia tree 
in dust and shade at 800 metres. You just never know, do you? Yeah, just never know. And, uh, Graeme, what about the elusive blue rose? What's happening there? Oh, Anything? We're, we're working on it. <laughs> Still. <laughs> well, in, in my own mind, I've got a, a and, um, what's the saying? Young males shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams. Um, it, it's a cobalt rose. And, and it's, it's amazing the reaction you get, you, you get from some people about a cobalt rose. Some people say yuck and other people say, oh yes, I love that. But of course, again, um, and then we're lucky with the blues that, that, um, perfume, is in most blue roses okay. and like, you know, uh, Angel Face and Charles de Gaulle and Neptune. And so again, um, the, the, the market they tell us or Anthony Tesla tells me, oh, that'll only, if you put out a cobalt blue rose, it'll only account for 14% of the market. Well, anyway, if it gets into China, it'll be all right, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they tell us 24 cities in, in, in China have a rose as their emblem. Okay. Mm. Wow. And, and of course we're, to be grateful for a lot of the species roses that mm, came out of China. Mm, yeah. Yeah, mm. Yeah. But it was, I was, again, in doing this research, I was really interested to see that there was a species rose from um, Alaska. Mm-hmm. So, yes. goodness. So, mm. I, yeah, I hadn't realised that, you know, mm. and, and there are a couple of um, species roses from the US as well. Mm-hmm. So, although mm-hmm. we tend to think of roses as coming from China, mm-hmm. they yep. actually came from right across the northern mm-hmm. hemisphere in the mm-hmm. colder in the colder part. And did you find out if there were any popular cultivars developed from the Alaskan rose? No. Mm, no. It was just, it, they found um, fossil remains. It's one of the oldest rose fossil remains from the Eocene period, mm-hmm. which is 35 million years ago. Mm. Mm. Incredible. Mm. Incredible. Go back a long way. They yeah. sure do. Mm. Now, Penny, you and uh, Karen Sutherland, and I think maybe one other, have just yes. finished writing a not quite. Book. We're not quite there. Come That's on. Why I almost didn't. Well, we're doing all this work ourselves because we're self-publishing. We haven't got any – well, we did employ an editor, but we don't, we're doing all the proofreading Everything. and, and yep. instructing the designer and all that sort of thing. So it's been a totally different process to yep. what I'm used to. We're doing um, the final proofread at the moment. So that's what I've been doing apart from yesterday, which I, which I took off because I had some family commitments. I have been sitting in front of my computer proofreading the book mm, for about four days. It's tricky proofreading your own stuff, isn't it? Yep. Because you're so used to the words yep. that you tend to gloss yep. over them and sometimes you can let a very yep. simple error pass by. Mm. Yeah. Well, in the very first sentence of my section, I had that instead of than. And I had missed it 40 times. Yeah. Mm. Karen read it yeah. and picked, picked it up, up straight, straight away. away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I want to know is what are some new things that you found out about tomatoes? Well, lots and lots and lots of things. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I think for me, the really surprising thing is how many different heritage, uh, heritage heirloom tomatoes we've got in Australia now. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Diggers has done an amazing job of bringing, uh, since the 90s, of bringing heirloom mm. tomatoes into Australia. Um, but most of the the really exciting stuff is coming out of Tasmania at the moment, mm-hmm. as far as tomatoes go. And that's because of the Royal Tasmanian Botanic Gardens and the fact that um, it's you can no longer bring tomatoes, so any Solanaceae seed, into Australia um, without it having a phytosanitary certificate from the place where it's come from. And then when it gets here, customs have to grow out 
20% of the seed that comes in to make sure that the viroids that are found overseas are not in the seed mm-hmm. that's coming in. So mm-hmm. really important that nobody brings a packet of seed back in their luggage because mm. there are really destructive viroids in the Solanaceae family overseas that we don't have in Australia. And mm. it could totally destroy not just the tomato industry but the potato industry, the capsicum mm. industry. All of those plants are, sus- are susceptible. So it costs a fortune now to bring seed, tomato seed into Australia, but the Botanic Gardens have, has done it a couple of times, um, brought in 50 new heirloom cultivars, mm-hmm. um, and they've also been collecting them from seed sellers all over Australia. And mm. we, I cal- I've done the section on the, on the um, cultivars, and um, I was able to locate close to 500 different heirloom cultivars in Australia. And there's probably 15,000 worldwide. Um, and this is, mm-hmm. the, this is not the mm-hmm. modern bred um, F1, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a huge number of these are just the heirloom ones. Yep. Um, and uh, what I've put together in the book is 220 different heirloom cultivars that are available um, through seed sellers in Australia. Mm-hmm. So if there's a tomato described in the book, yep. um, down the bottom of the description, you'll find out where you can buy it from. Mm. Um, and it, the diversity is just huge. It's everything from tiny little yellow ones called Barry's Crazy Cherry <laughs> all the way up to these beautiful, huge Aunt Ruby's German Green, which is uh, this gorgeous green tomato that has Aunt these... Aunt Ruby's German, German Green, green. really. <laughs> and, and they all have a story. Too. A lot that. of them have a story too. You buy it for the name yeah. just as much as the yeah. tomato itself. And, yeah. and you know, the, the, it, it is just... It is a wonderful world to dip your toe mm. into. Um, and there are just so many different sorts and, and different ways that you can use them and Janice um, has done the recipe section and she has the most amazing recipes for mm-hmm. you know using your tomatoes. Penny, can I ask you a question sure. from way out? Yeah. Um, in human feces can the seeds be passed along? Um, they certainly go through compost. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Possibly. So mm. I guess we'll leave depends. that up to you to trial, Graham. Yeah. Report well, back next month. Well, the <laughs> I, think I think the question is more about what happens to the human feces than what mm. happens to the seed. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about people bringing back seed because we travel so much now. Yeah, look, it's I, unbelievable. I, don't, yeah, I think, the, I think the travel that industry. It, having gone through our gut, it's mm. unlikely to be carrying the same sort of right. issues. That, mm. um, and one of the things that you do need to do with tomato seed is to um, ferment it. Mm-hmm. So don't, it's quite easy to save. You can just scoop out your tomato and dry out the seed. But if you ferment it, it will get rid of quite a few of the diseases that get carried by seed. Mm. So that, and that's a relatively easy thing to do, but it just takes a few days to mm. do it. So. The reason I ask this question, they're now doing substantial work on, on uh, connection of toilets. And I'm, I've got a public health background and health yep. inspection and stuff, and I did work on septic tanks for... Ages. Graham, what haven't you done? <laughs> I just say to our listeners that you never know what you're going no, to learn. No, no, no. no. And um, the, the big cost for a block of land is, first of all, your sewerage. Yep. Then the next big cost is the connection of the power. Yep. Okay. Um, and now the work with um, microbes yep. and an injector onto a plate in the toilet, which goes zzz, and disintegrates the feces. On the spot sounds to me like it's got a lot of merit. Now, oh, I don't know how okay. far it's been developed. And you can imagine the 
what happens with a network of sewerage, mm. and then a lot of it goes to ponds yeah. and um, around the Kilmore area. We've got a ponding system at Wallen, huge acres. Mm. Another one to Kilmore, which big acreage area, which the birds get to, which yeah. again is another world yeah. all of its own. And if we can eliminate um, uh, a lot of that need in, in blocks of land, because I believe in, in people um, owning their own little yeah. pad, their own yeah. little backyard yep. and that sort of thing. So I'd love to see this develop because mm. we, we, we have, we had crude systems with septic tanks. They're yeah. terrible. Mm. They were just absolutely woeful. They mm. were just not effective at all. Mm. And, um, and I did some work even in the United States years ago. I went and did a trip by mm. under my own steam to study septics. And then, of course, we come up with, oh, just put sewage onto everything. Mm. Mm. And, um, and and look, a lot of the issues around sewerage is not the feces anyway. It's all the other crap we've got. <laughs> literally, <Yeah. laughs> all the other stuff. <laughs> right, like yeah. The, like yeah. The wet wipes, which yes. is a disaster. Mm. Yes. You know, and we just have to rethink the way we do so mm. many different things. Well, we've got a septic at our place. It's been we've been there sixteen years, and we haven't had it pumped out. And mm. we believe it's because we've always used herbal yeah. uh, products uh, for cleaning and that sort yep. of thing. Yep. And and the cleaning world, when you walk into the supermarket. It's just like it's. Yeah. Well, I don't even go down that aisle. It's extensive, like the soft drink area. (laughs) We we don't need any of that. No. No. We really don't. Just Mm. use a cloth. Mm. Yes. (laughs) And a bit of elbow grease. But you were really asking that. You're trying to bring tomato seeds back from somewhere where you grow (laughs) them. Looking at a new way of doing so. No. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Well, it's it's an interesting world. Yes, so Penny, did, and did you chat with people around Australia to see what to tomatoes grow well where? And, yeah, and did that. you find any patterns of um, things? That I, were look, I think I think one of the things that a lot of people have to deal with, and increasingly more people, are fruit flying. Um, yep. and mm. and so people in Queensland grow tomatoes differently to people in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Karen did all that all that side of it. Yep. Um, so she she talked, she um, interviewed various growers, and those interviews are, are in the book. Um, I talked to people who were involved in the sort of seed-saving industry. Yep. So um, I talked to diggers and to um, Michael, Michelle and Jude Fanton and yep. the various people who are saving Linda Coburn in, in, um, at Seed Freaks mm-hmm. in Tassie. Um, mm-hmm. she's, she's now selling 150 different cultivars of tomatoes. So, um, yeah, it, it, there's some fantastic people out there doing some really interesting stuff. So it's, it's very Australia oriented. Um, it's organic. Um, it's heirloom. Um, and you know, so it's a, and it's, it's a very big book. Mm. And a lot of these, the people saving so it always does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not when you've got a publisher, not when you've got a publisher because no, they, they tamp you down a no, bit. No, do you know what they did not? I okay. wrote nearly double the amount of words that okay. was in my contract to write and they've kept everything. Okay. So I was oh, quite well happy done. about that. Good. Yeah. But yeah, so just getting back to uh, people not only saving seed, but then on selling it. A lot of these people, I think, are uh, motivated by keeping these plants alive. And, yeah. and going. So it must be uh, quite uh, thrilling to them, I suppose, mm. when people buy their seed and they have it, that. It's about food sovereignty. Yeah. So it's about being able to have our own seed to grow our own food. And yeah. we've just had this huge scare in the organic world with um, new regulations that have been put on brassicas um, and on the cucumber family. Um, which means that they all have to be treated with fungicides before they come in to Australia. 
Um, and, and that was what the Department of Agriculture was going to do until there was this huge backlash and petitions and things from the organic community saying, you know, that might be fine for, you know, all these commercial growers, but what about us? We've, mm-hmm. We mm. work really hard to mm. not have mm. these chemicals mm. in. We need to, you need to make allowances for us mm. and being able to bring clean seed. We're not saying we just want it imported willy-nilly. We yeah. understand that it needs treatment. But you need to have other things in the system that allow us, and that is now starting to happen because mm. of the huge outcry around it. So, um, you know, we most of our seed um, is actually imported. So even these small seed companies, and diggers and green harvest and people that we talk about all the time, um, mostly import their seed from it, from the US or from mm. Mexico, or and and they'll import organic seed if that's yep. what they say it is, or, or not organic. Um, but it's because seed saving is not a good way of making money. You do it because you love it, mm. not uh, it, you know, on a commercial basis. Mm. You do it because you love it, not because you're going to make a whole lot of money. And you love the it. plant. And, and you love yep. the plant and you believe in our food security. And, and the, the really sad thing is that the big chemical companies are buying up all the seed companies. Mm. So most of our seed stock now is held by three giant corporations, Monsanto being mm. one of them. Mm. Um, and so it's so important that we buy our seed from these small companies who are actually trying to grow their own seed. Mm. And especially when it is still available. Yeah, at the moment it is. But you see, tomatoes we're lucky with because they tend not to cross-pollinate. Um, 95% of tomatoes don't cross-pollinate. So you can grow 150 different tomatoes and save seed from it fairly easily. Mm. Whereas corn you've got to be something like two kilometres away because it's pollinated by yep. the wind. Yep. If you want to ha- or you've got to grow it at a different time for the different sorts of corn. Mm. So um, I can't remember what they're called, organic. There's a seed company in Australia who's trying to preserve about 12 different varieties of corn, mm. um, and they, they're doing an amazing job with that. So, um, so we need to work with our small seed companies to Mm. try and make it possible for them Mm. to keep doing what they're doing and to support seed saver networks and all that sort of thing. Mm. Really Mm. important. Otherwise, we lose, as I said, our food sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Penny, this will be relevant for you. Jenny has called in wanting to know how to ferment tomato seed. Okay. So (laughs) um, fermenting is really easy. You just scoop out the seed, you put it into a cup, um, you might add a little bit of water to it, but that's not entirely necessary. And you leave it sitting out of direct sunlight. Um, and over three days, it will go form this white scum on the top. And the fermentation breaks down the gelatinous substance around the seed, which some, is sometimes the area where disease is carried. Um, you don't leave it for more than three days or it, it will have gone too far. So sort of two to three days. Um, and then you rinse you take the scum pretty much off the top, you rinse it with water, leave it to sit, and all the, all the fertile seed will drop to mm-hmm, the bottom, mm-hmm. and anything that's floating is will not be fertile. So mm-hmm. you pour off the, any scum that's left on the top, and the infertile seeds, you wash it again with water, pour it off again, and then finally put it in a sieve and just um, rinse it through the sieve and spread it out on a plate and dry it. Simple. Easy. So it's just that initial fermenting using the natural um, bugs that are in the air um, will ferment it. Okay. Because, yeah, I've um, experimented myself and a lot of people would have as well, just getting the tomato seed when it's tomato season and smushing it onto onto paper towel and letting that dry. So you think we need that step in between. You do need a step in between. And I actually wouldn't put it on paper towel. 
It's an absolute pain on paper towel. Because <laughs> then you've got to cut it up, and yeah. it's become this thing yeah. in Australia to put it, it on. Nobody yeah, yeah. else does it. So somehow it's got, I don't know whether someone on Gardening Australia did it or something, but it's been Everyone's you're much doing better it now, off yeah. putting it on a plate. Yep. And just make sure you label them. So if you're saving all these different different seeds, then. Mm. So, uh, as I was trying to say before, one of, the, one of the good things about tomatoes is that they tend to not cross-pollinate. They self-pollinate. Um, and there are some exceptions, but um, only about 5% of them will cross-pollinate. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so it's relatively easy to save pure seed. But uh, one of the things that they've discovered is that the blue-banded bee will pollinate tomatoes because they do this head-butting thing, which loosens, loosens the... It, so it's not the nectar that they're after because... Tomato flowers carry very little nectar. It's the pollen, pollen. that they're after, which is the protein. Hmm. And they've filmed them actually head-butting a tomato flower 350 times a second. <laughs> so it's insane, isn't it's it? Just, yeah. It's just 350 times, times a, a second. second. So the bumblebees do yeah. it differently. They vibrate yes. their chests and they yeah. put their chests up against the flower and that vibration loosens mm. the pollen. But with... Blue banded bees, it's a it's the headbangers. It's the headbangers. Yeah. And I just love the fact that Death we Metal have, listeners. Yeah, that yeah. we have headbanging blue banded bees. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So um if you've got a lot of blue banded bees around you may get your tomatoes cross pollinating and you may end up with some new heirloom tomatoes, mm. modern heirlooms mm. is what we call them now. Um and there are some amazing tomatoes coming out of the US. Because um, there's a couple, there's a half a dozen really dedicated breeders there who are getting the anthocyanins into tomatoes, so mm-hmm. the black-skinned, yep. the true black tomatoes, not the um, Russian black or the you know the mm. black crim, black Russian, which are actually brown or burgundy tomatoes. Mm-hmm. These are true um, violet black uh, on the skin, and, and they and go black where the sun touches the tomato. And what are they like for taste? Um, not as good a taste for some of them, mm-hmm. but because they're high in anthocyanins, which is what you get in blueberries and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the anthocyanins mainly in the skin, right. uh, and a little bit below the skin. So when you cut a, one of these, green, say green and black, which is this amazing, really deep um, tomato, it looks as if it should be purple on the inside. You slice it, and it's iridescent green on the inside. So we have photographs of all these things. <laughs> so you're not only growing them for their taste, you're growing them for, for their, their health, health properties, properties and yes. uh, for what they look like on your Instagram feed. Yeah, except I don't do Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people to, I do. might have to start, but I haven't done it yet. I've avoided it so far. Yes, yes. I think you should, Penny. You've got a lot of exciting things to share. Yeah, yeah. You've got to have time to do it, though, and the energy, and I would rather spend my time with my husband and my children <laughs> when I get the chance to see them. Do um, selfies with yes. them? Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> my daughter, who sort of partly runs my um, Facebook page, is always saying to me, Mum, when you do this, will you get someone to take a photograph of you, please, so I can put it up? I mm. said, no. <laughs> Need so you need a photographer following you around. Yeah, yeah to, no, to do all that you. side of it. So now you mentioned your uh, garden has been uh, left alone for a little while. What what's happening? I'm sure there's still bits um, and bobs going on. Uh, I, look, I haven't got a lot. I've, I haven't put my garlic in yet. Mm-hmm. That's that's. I was hoping it would be next week, but I think it's going to be the week after now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing a lot of. I'm just starting to do cutting back and and um, what I, I have eight big garden beds that are 2.5 metres by about 1.5 metre and um, I've decided to put them up one more level so they're going up another 30 centimetres mm-hmm. 
So I'm doing that gradually, and each time I'm actually turning one garden bed into a compost heap. Mm-hmm. So all the all the stuff that I'm cutting back, weeding, mulching is all going to go into one of the garden beds yep. with with some extra um, lucerne hay and, and manure and and the chook. I've just cleaned out the chook pen, so that's going in there as well. Um, and that will gradually break down, and I'll be able to plant that in by creating soil pockets in there I'd be able to plant you know things like zucchini and pumpkins and stuff in that bed by next by next spring yeah um so I'm I'm creating compost in that way I'm expanding as I said my worm farm so um because I've got a lot more worms and what sort of system do you have well ad hoc mm-hmm. <laughs> worms <laughs> here there everywhere any in ground um, no, not at the moment. I'm, I've got I've got a three system thing which I'm experimenting with, which is just a normal worm farm. Mm-hmm. But I'm finding it doesn't break down fast enough because I don't have time to cut up all my bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so from there, it goes into one of the um, spinning compost. Oops, compost things. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was demonstrating compost how tumbler, my compost yep. tumbler goes around. <laughs> Um, uh, with all with a whole lot of paper, shredded paper, because my worm farm tends to be too wet. Yeah. So it goes in, it breaks down further in there, and then I take it out of there, and I've got an old trough, which is where I get the worms out of the um, the stuff that I want to put on the garden bed. Yep. So I'll put a fresh bucket of compost on one side, um, and all the worms will move into that, and then I can take that out, and that's ready to put on the on the garden bed. And what sort of trough is that? It's just a laundry trough that okay. I just put, built a wooden frame for to have it up at a reasonable mm-hmm. level so I'm not down on my knees. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it, it's got, it goes through these, these three things. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, it's, it's really good usable. Because I was finding that because it's only a two-tier worm farm, it, it, the bottom stuff wasn't ready to go on the soil by the time I'd filled this up. So I needed to put some interim stages into mm. it. And I've, I'm, using, I'm managing to um, mulch... Um, uh, most of my paper mm-hmm. that I've, the, you know, the office paper that I use, having reused the other side and yep. reused it as often as I can, yep. it then gets mulched and goes in to the to the worm farm, mm-hmm. and that's working pretty well. Too. And you're not concerned about the inks? No. Okay. No. Because? Um, because I think the worms break it down, mm-hmm. um, and I would rather it was going through my compost than. And it's all part of this philosophy of not sending things off the property as far as possible. Yep. Um, and I also, one of the things that I started doing quite a few years ago is only using a print that is a really fine print on anything that I do. So anything that I print out um, is has light print. Is light mm. print. It mm. has as little ink on it yep. as possible. So I use Helvetica, which is one of the finer mm-hmm. fonts. Yep. Um, and how's the size of the letters? They're fine. They're fine. It's just it's a narrower... It's a narrower print, mm-hmm. and it's not as dark as, as some of them, not as oh. solid. Mm-hmm. Um, so it uses less ink. Because mm. those so. print cartridges, boy, do they cost yeah. an arm and a leg. Mm. Yeah. Like print is super cheap, and then the printer yeah. cartridges are yeah. three times as much. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So. And what about you, Graham? What's going on in your garden? Well, um, I've been doing some work with um, fertiliser in the pots, and mm-hmm. you have to fertilise pots. Yep. And that fertiliser is being made from food. And there's a gentleman who's got an agreement with um, Yarra Valley Water, and this gentleman's taking the food from refuse areas, mm. and he has a, a factory with uh, worm beds, yep. and he produces this um, food after it's been through a heating process, mm. and he puts it in these beds, and then the fertiliser's taken from that food. Yep. And um, 
I was amazed there's a, there's a factory at Summerton where these um, uh, worm beds are all set out in mm. through the factory and um, the, the extent of what the work is doing is just uh, yeah. uh, fantastic. And it's called bio... Um, they're cir- circular food, is the Yes, yeah, circular company? food, mm. yeah. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I've been there. He's, they're doing yeah. some really interesting stuff yes. there. Um, and and it's, 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 again, it's the trick to get that fertiliser mm. and... And the microbes to work on the potting mix, and the potting mix we use is made up of um, coconut fibre because that travels well in the mail. Mm. And um, because sometimes when we send roses, some of the outer areas might even take three weeks to get there. Yeah. Um, and then again, the, mir- the miracle of that is that, that people get them, and they'll send us photos, and we just get them to cut the roses back yep. about, in the old language, six mm. inches from the butt. Mm. And then use liquid seaweed on them mm. once or twice a week for six weeks, and they're amazing. They come back yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. I think that company, they're also um, using recycled plastic to make garden furniture, I believe. Don't know. If it's the same, same yeah, company. Don't know. Yeah, I didn't, certainly yeah, yeah. I didn't see that yeah. they were using that in the area that we mm. did the tour of. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Were they the company that was at um, the Flower and Garden Show this year? Were they, did don't they have so. a stand? Oh, they were there, okay. the, they were there the year company before. Then. Yeah. They were there okay. the year before. Yeah, no, yeah. but you, there's so many um, good things going out there, yep. mm. inventions that yep. people, are, are coming up So many up people trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Mm. You know, yeah. Doing it in really good way, in and interesting mm. ways. I think we just yeah. need a bit more investment mm-hmm. in, in yep. those areas so that yep. they, these products become mainstream rather yeah. than, yeah. yeah. It'd be good to get some more money invested in those sort of things and, and maybe not quite so much into the digital Sphere, yeah, that's not or a bit more of a balance Mm, um, mm. would be good. Uh, We have to, we have to continue to do a whole lot of research, and Australia has been very good at that, Mm. um, and especially in the medical world. Mm. And we have to continue to keep that going, Mm. and and make it marketable in other places around the world. Yeah, and that's 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 a real Mm. good challenge. One of um, the listeners rang in before, which we didn't mention about. one of the other programs that's well worth watching is, is the ABC's Landline. Landline. Mm-hmm. Every week they have something mm, innovative mm, that mm. somebody is doing, a, yes. a rural person is doing in Australia, and I, yeah. you know it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And if you can't watch it, it's on on Sundays. My husband mm. religiously watches it um, mm. and mm. tells me what I need to see. Yeah, and, and it's, and it's yeah. fantastic to have those good news stories mm. because news now, when we turn on at night, has become synonymous with bad news mm. yeah. rather than just news generally. Mm. So why aren't some of these good news stories Indeed. in our yeah. mainstream yeah. news? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. yeah, and that's, that's, that's the good stories with what are coming up in places like the Weekly Times yeah. and the Land I mean, Paper. And yeah. and, yeah, we need some good good news good stories. News stories. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Well, on that note, it's probably a good note to finish on. Mm. Uh, so that's all the time that we have for now. I'd like to thank Jan and Liz for womaning the phones. Thanks to Graeme and Penny for sharing your fantastic knowledge. Always enjoy having an extended chat with you. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and Pam will be back with you next week. So bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.